I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Ron Jacobs. He writes for Counterpunch and has written an article about the recent Virginia election for governor. His piece is titled, The Confederacy Votes for a White Supremacist. Is that news? All right, why don't we start then? We'll start with uh, Ezra. Uh, I, I was in the class of 63 uh, at Harvard, as I guess many people on the group. And um, I am now a retired uh, faculty psychiatrist from, from Yale. That's why these offensive comments appear from time to time. And, <laughs> And I, and I spend a number of months overseas now with, with my retirement, so I'm, I'm talking to you from Paris. Oh, boy. Oh. Oh. All right, Bill? Yeah, Bill Collins. I live in Aiken, South Carolina. I came here about 30 years ago to work at the Savannah River site, trying to do something about nuclear waste cleanup, all the waste left over from the Cold War. And I had been in the Navy for 20 years after I graduated from college nuclear power, and then uh, worked for Westinghouse for a while in Savannah River. Now I'm retired. Alden. I'm uh, like everybody else, I guess. I'm in the class of 63. Um, I live in San Mateo, California, just about 18 miles south of San Francisco. And my wife and I uh, have a company which consults with nonprofits in executive search and raising. Okay, Jerry's. Jerry Secundi, I live in Pasadena, California. I'm also class of 63. I uh, went into the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru for a couple of years, worked for the Department of Justice, worked for an oil company, worked for the state government, worked for Audubon Society, uh, and an environmental lawyer. John Woodford. Uh, hi, I'm here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where my wife, who is also 63, um, class came in 77 after I got out of New York, which I couldn't stand. No, no fault of Marcy's that I couldn't stand. <laughs> but anyway, this is my home, my home state, and I am back in it since then. Okay, Ann Huberman. Yeah, I'm uh, also class of '63 and retired academic librarian and a current climate activist in the town of Peterborough, New Hampshire. All right, Peter. <laughs> I'm an editor and writer and live up here in the North Country. After Harvard, I was in SNCC for a couple of years and uh, and did journalism for quite a while. So, but it's uh, beautiful up here in the North Country. So we're having a nice fall. I think everybody's up north there. Kent, you're up north someplace. Yeah, I'm up in New York. Yeah, we're having a good fall too. Yeah. Mason. Uh, I'm Mason Morgan. I'm in uh, Freeport, Maine. I was actually class of 62-3, which many of you will recognize as involuntary sabbatical. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the good news about that was that I got to room with Kent uh, on my return to the college. So oh, thank you. <laughs> it, was, it was worth the whole effort. And uh, <laughs> I spent 33 years working for a nonprofit group called the Nature Conservancy that was trying to protect biodiversity on the planet. Uh, and then realized a few years ago that uh, 
while habitat loss had been the number one cause of species extinction, it was now climate change. So I've tried to become a climate activist. I've been active uh, at some degree on the national level with a group called uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, which is trying to get national legislation to put a uh, price on carbon. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, lobbying in Washington and so forth, but I wasn't seeing the needle move very much. So now I've refocused on uh, the town of Freeport, Maine, and I've already managed to rattle the city government uh, pretty thoroughly. So we'll see what happens. Well, that's good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. George. George Allen. Uh, uh, I'm also class of 63. And the lawyer is down to one remaining active case. Marcy. Um, I'm in New York City, and my group and I have been the information center uh, through many documents, <laughs> um, but also just people talking to people for major resource allocation battles and spending priorities battles for many, many decades. And all the documents <laughs> that I've found so far trying to make this treasure to prove more accessible, all of them are relevant to public policy battles today, including over um, things that affect and are affected by climate change. Uh, Jeff, Jeffrey. Hi, uh, I'm Jeff Fox, also class of 63, a uh, sociologist and fiction writer, hoping you will all uh, read and review my latest novel, Rebel, about the uh, young workers in the Paris Commune. I think there are parallels to a lot of today's social struggles. So that's me. Okay, and uh, Jim Bailey, tell us about you. How are you? I'm uh, as good as can be. I have a uh, very uh, rare condition known as primary lateral sclerosis, which uh, has put me in a wheelchair. Uh, but I'm as mentally clear as I ever was, which is not sort of a mixed element. Uh, I am the class of 63, but at the University of Virginia, and I can tell that uh, it's nice of you guys to let me in here because you may need a counterweight of sorts. Uh, <laughs> I'm kind of a Mark Warner Democrat. Uh, I've been the uh, fundraiser for number of uh, politics, Louisiana. I have founded a, uh, uh, in 2001, the Bayou Tech Wildlife Refuge, uh, which is starting to show signs of rejuvenating the poorest parish in the state. Uh, hopefully I'll see it out. And uh, lastly, I have, uh, I have been unsuccessful in more private enterprise efforts than most people uh, deal with in a lifetime. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, I'm living proof that uh, the private sector is not the answer to all problems. <laughs> Thank you. All right. All right, Ron, how are you? Ron Jacobs? I'm doing well. And I first I want to say thanks for inviting me onto this. And it's great to be such an illustrious group. Um, in 1963, I was eight years old. Um, I, was, I was living in Pakistan. My dad was in the military. He was in the intelligence services, and he lived on. We lived on a base in Peshawar that um, spied on 
what they call, you know, you remember it being called Red China and the Russians. Um, that base disappeared in nine in 69 when they when the governments changed and when the military regime was pushed out in Pakistan. Anyhow, so I went to Fordham in seven um in 73 and 74, and then I left New York City. Uh and then I kind of took a very circuitous route for the rest of my education. I didn't actually get a college, a bachelor's degree till 1990 at um, the Evergreen State College out in Olympia, Washington. It's an alternative school that was founded by the same people who founded Hampshire. Uh, it's the same group of, only the difference was Hampshire's a private college and Evergreen is a state funded school uh, to, to try to check out the differences in economics and so on. Um, anyhow, but I was actually act as a high school student. Um, I was actively involved in the anti-Vietnam anti War movement, and on on military bases, I worked a lot with GIs and other high school. I mean, military dependents opposing the war. Um, and then after I turned eighteen, I didn't have to deal with the military anymore. I never looked back, uh, and kind of rambled around, um, worked here and there, and just kind of maintain my political involvement, usually on groups that were considerably left, given that by the time in the 70s, that's kind of what, what was there after the breakup of SDS and so on and so forth. Um, I was involved in a lot of those. And then in the 80s, I moved up to Washington State. I was living in Berkeley, California for a while and Southern California. I've lived in almost every place that you guys are hailing from, except for uh, Ann Arbor, and, 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 yeah, yeah, and Virginia. I, I lived in Asheville most recently. Now I live back up in Burlington, Vermont. I've been writing for Counterpunch magazine since 2002, since it went online. And uh, I published a few books. The first book I published was a history of the, the first history of the weather underground that um, Verso put out. And I, currently I work part-time, I'm semi-retired. I turned, just turned 66. Um, and I'm working part-time at a library. I've been working in libraries, academic and public since 1987 uh, and in a variety of roles. Uh, and I just ended up in the, in the past year becoming the president of our union local. So that's been interesting. I helped organize a few unions in my life, but I was never in a workplace that actually got organized. So this has been an interesting experience. I'm finding that I prefer organizing over administrating, but one has to do what one has to do. So I was, Kent called me on to talk about my article um, that appeared last week after the elections in Virginia. Uh, elections, which I was not surprised turned out the way they did. It's kind of how, you know, Virginia, having lived a long time in Maryland, and we first moved there to Maryland when I was young, and it was still literally and psychologically below the Mason-Dixon line. Now it's just literally that way. It's, but it's a fairly liberal state overall. Uh, I'm familiar, I was somewhat familiar with how Virginia politics worked and Maryland politics. And I've watched as they've become more suburbanized, become more Democrat, but new de Democrat in terms of today, not the Democrat of the slavery party. Um, but I, I have to be honest, I wasn't surprised. And I don't really think that the election is a harbinger of much of anything other than the fact that the South still has a lot to work out, uh, just like the rest of the country, but those battles are being fought at a higher level in the South and Virginia, for some reason, probably because it seems to be 50-50 among people who, are, who want to move past its 
Confederate past. Ron, one of the issues that I've been concerned about is that I don't think human beings are very good at change. Uh, I mean, we've been kind of around for 1.7 million years and, and things haven't changed a whole lot. Uh, stuff is changing a whole lot. And it's my sense is that that change just scares the living hell out of people. You know, poor people, people who are different, uh, whatever, that's what you reach out against. You, can you comment on that? Is that? Yeah, I, I, that, I agree with you. People are slow to change and so on like that. I, I wonder, and, I, and I, I think part of the reason that people lash out at those who they consider lesser than them is because those who are in power, those who are in power, whether it's in the economic people with the power or the politicians or so on, um, there is enough of them who are much more willing, who intentionally um, point their fingers at, at others so they don't become the scapegoat. I mean, it's a, as you know, I mean, if you, the, the history of revolution is, is when people, when people, the, the, the populi, the hoi polloi, the, the working class, whatever you want, whatever the terminology is for whatever particular revolution, um, that when they band together and go against the powers that be, that's what strikes fear into, that, that's what changes things in a revolutionary way. However, if you noticed the immediate after or the aftermath in the next couple of decades of a revolution tends to create a similar a similar scenario then there there are still the poor there are still other people have now become powerful whether it's through being rich or just through accumulating power depending on what was replaced by what uh but yeah i think people that's why they scapegoat other people um who are who they consider lesser than them uh, i think people who really get dumped on across the country and probably in the world are um immigrants i mean if you just see how immigrants are treated around the world uh they are treated terribly, especially immigrants who come from the South. And it's easy to blame the immigrants for ish, for things that they have absolutely nothing to do with. But politicians do it all the time, and any and those those who wish to main you know keep it's a divide. I think it's a combination of how humans are, and I think it's an intentional to, an intention to divide and conquer by those who are in power. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of what you're talking about is what is precisely what my book is about, because this is what was going on in the Paris Commune. And of course, you had the people, um, the, the, the opponents who wanted to create a picture of the people who were defending the Commune as, well, they were foreigners, uh, they were scum uh, or rabble, which is the title of my novel. Uh, and, uh, uh, but, but they emphasized especially the idea that they, that they, weren't, they weren't really French, um, they were, they, they were, they were uh, foreigners, they were disorderly, and because they were working class, they were probably all drunks, and the women were all prostitutes. And, you know, and they tried to inculcate, inculcate this attitude in their troops, you know, so that so when the soldiers went in there, they think, well, these, you're, you're not supposed to regard these Parisians as human beings. So, yeah. Uh, so um, it, it goes on, it's still going on. So, of course. You know, Ron, in your piece, you talk a lot about uh, the U.S. being very close to fascism. I mean, tell us a little about your thinking on that. It's that's a challenging question because everybody the the definition of fascism is so mutable and independent so much on who's talking. And I've since since Nixon, I mean, I've been 
studying fascism as much as when I, whenever the word seems to be in the popular conversation again. And so obviously while Trump was um, president, um, I revisited a lot of books. There was a lot of new stuff that came out. There was, um, and my, so my take on fascism, I think is kind of that it requires a few things. It requires the government in, in service to capital, um, corporate capital. It requires, and it's a movement more than it is any particular politician or anything. That's why I think the Trumpist movement, which still exists and is still quite resonant. I mean, if, if we watch the reaction to the Kyle Rittenhouse trial or especially the Kyle Rittenhouse trial, but a lot of other things that are going on, you'll see that there are still a lot of people who um, think that what Kyle Rittenhouse did was righteous and more people should do it and so on. And that Black Lives Matter protesters were wrong and that, you know, women are not as good as men, white people are better than other people, so on and so forth. Although fascism is not necessarily a racist movement. And I kind of see that what's going on in the US, that the stuff that came up with Trump, um, the guys at the front, the guys and gals who are at the front were probably, you know, once you got outside the GOP, um, were primarily fascists, the Proud Boys, the Nazis, whatever you, the KKK, all, and all these other alt-right groups that appeared. Uh, and they're interested in upending the system, upending the social order, and so that they can take power. And while they have, while they speak an anti-corporate and an anti-government, um, that's part of their rhetoric and so on. The truth is they're only against the government and and the so-called deep state when they're not in control of it. And that's why I, I think right now we're at a moment where fascism is just as likely as what we have now or something better, something more pop, you know, more populist from the left as opposed to populist on the right. Um, I don't know if that answers any questions, but it's just kind of my thoughts on, on, on what fascism is and why we're at this moment. And also in, in my piece, I say that the Democrats being part of that same system, although representing perhaps a different faction of the, <clears throat> what for, for lack of a better word, um, what, they represent a different power elite among, among the ruling elites. Uh, the fact is that they're they're still interested in the same thing. They're still interested in the pursuit of profit. They're and they all band together when there's a when it's time to fight a war overseas, and so on. So I don't think they they can mount the best opposition. I still think that in my like I say in my piece, the best opposition can be mounted by organizing in the streets, which is and in the workplace and in churches and so on. And that's the biggest challenge, in my mind, is how to get back to a point where there are there is mass organization on the scale that we saw throughout the 60s and into the 1970s and i don't that's the question for me i mean how do you get back to that what's your view how does how does that come back i don't know you know i mean i i, I kind of it's hard to look because i mean you can look at other countries like in latin america say bolivia um or even venezuela um where social movements were what pushed the situation in that, you know, social movements among the indigenous, among, in Venezuela was among the poor and that people, the, the people of color in, in Venezuela and among the rank and file in the unions, somehow they were able to get together. Whereas, and then new political parties were formed 
that actually were able to go into power. And if you take a, if you look beyond, if you look at more serious histories and histories that aren't written by um, sycophants for the um, the U.S. foreign policy, you can see that th those those countries are in a, in a constant struggle trying to maintain um, a, a forward movement. And but as we learn from or one of the things, one of the lessons I think was learned in the 60s and the early 70s is you can't translate what's going on in another country into what's going on into your into your country. So that's, I don't know. I mean, I like to think that we can do it through um, popularizing, you know, unions again and getting rank and file involved and making unions do more than just um, uh, strike or, or make them do more than just um, work to get better wages for those who are in the union, but to honestly try to move beyond the the union members into, into the, the, the people people who work in this country and the vast number of people who work in this country are not union members. Uh, the, another part is to take movements like Black Lives Matter and immigrants' rights movements uh, and somehow figure out a way to make them work together. I know there's avenues that exist, like you can go through the churches, you can go through the unions and the political parties. The problem with the two existing political parties is that progressive progressive movements that go into the political parties end up getting their uh, seem to end up getting all their work diluted to almost nothing. Now, I still at the same time, I believe it's too early to tell. I still have hope for the Sanderistas um, that are working in the uh, Democratic Party and, and the members of the squad and the, their supporters. I have more hope for the squad than the politicians themselves. I mean, for the people who support those politicians than the politicians themselves, only because politicians, once you get into Washington or into seats of power, there's other things at play that I don't understand because I've never been in that position. I mean, I can ramble on and I can rant about it, but I don't really know what the what the pressures are. Well, that was, Ron, this is Jerry. Uh, and just a question for you. Uh, I'm a strong union supporter. In fact, my dad was a union organizer for the IBEW. Uh, but having said that, look at the other end of the coin, which are the large corporations. To the best of my knowledge, most of these CEOs met uh, and decided not to support Trump and actually worked uh, very much against his reelection is what it amounts to. Do you think we can still count on those corporations to be a force against Trumpism and fascism? Um, I think as long as it's, it's a, I mean, if, if, to, let, if you look back at something, I mean, I, like I, if you look back at some place like Germany pre, like in the Weimar times and so on, so on, um, it, I, I think that we can count on those corporations until their profits are threatened to such an extent that they'd rather go with fascism. Because I, I you know, if, if you look at Germany, the history of the Nazi party in Germany, uh, most, a lot of the corporations that ultimately ended up supporting the Third Reich were opposed to the Nazi movement until it, it gained a certain popularity and then the machinations they were able to play um, with Hindenburg and the parliament and so on and isolating the SPD on one side and isolating, uh, you know, basically getting the SPD to support their campaign against the communists and so on. And so I, I think it's a, we can count on them, but at the same time, one has to be constantly wary because one never knows 
when that support might disappear. We're getting various protest movements to converge is, is of course what we were trying to do in the 70s. Uh, and you can do it and it becomes very powerful. I mean, SDS really was an amalgam of uh, people with, with very <clears throat> different kinds of grievances and, and, uh, and aspirations. It won't last forever because the because they really are pursuing uh, different agendas, but they can they can coincide, uh, and uh, and when you when you can bring get these people together and have everybody talking to one another, yes, uh, you can do things like uh, you know like you know get uh, Nixon to decide well you know maybe maybe we should we should get out of Vietnam and you can force some of the other changes and you know we had we had some successes yeah well, that's yeah. the key isn't it vietnam war was the focus i mean in my yeah. perception the focus of the protest that arose in the 60s and 70s was the vietnam war and that well, uh, that, that, provided... that and, and and civil rights also they were combined they, they were yeah. uh, but but bringing those two together was a job you know get, yeah. <laughs> getting getting those in one in one movement to support those in the other movement, that was not easy. But uh, yeah, and it was a constant. It was a constant juggling act. And like right. you said, um, SDS had people all the way, like Carl Oglesby, who ultimately was a libertarian, right. all the way to um, the folks who ended up in the Weather Underground and the Revolutionary right. Union and all the various members of the new, you know, the different little sects that happened in the in the seventies. And then you had the broad masses in in the middle who really didn't want to go to war, supported racial equality and also wanted, you know, by the late 60s, which is when I started, when I joined into it as a high schooler, um, who wanted to have a good time also, you know, because the counterculture had become part of that deal, um, you know, and it had become so identified. And in part, in part, that was because of harassment by the authorities, where they couldn't tell the difference between just some hippie who liked rock music and wanted to smoke pot and somebody who wanted to blow up the Pentagon. So, yeah. yeah. John, what do you think? Well, I think they knew the difference between them. I think there's been a, there's always an effort by the uh, a state like ours to separate and to disunite the groups that would be effective if they got together. So that's always gone too. But I, I'd like to get back to the notion that there's no change. I think there's been tremendous change throughout the uh, centuries and millennia in human society. Uh, we used to have clans and tribes and kingdoms and slave societies all over the world. So, you know, change is always going on. It's not, there's, there's never a time that it's not changing. It's a matter of how we'll adapt. I think in this country, we know the wealthy inequality and the standard of living of so many people has been threatened or has gone down that there's a ferment that could go, you know, it could go into a very ugly, kind of uh, uh, discord or, or people could come together and, and have a political movement that unites, but we don't know, you know, as you, as Ron said, we, you know, how, who's gonna do it, how, the form it will take. I think we're in a situation where we're watching that play out and whether we come up with the ability to unite is gonna depend upon um, a lot about the people in the country. Uh, it's, it's not gonna be easy because these, uh, I mean, I find a lot of these um, so-called progressive Democrats 
um, I think Jim pointed it out a couple of weeks ago, how their, um, their uh, assumptions and language and the way they uh, uh, behave towards a lot of people who could go one way or the other, it, it can turn people off. And um, a lot of them come from districts where they're not really having to compete for the support of, um, you know, we might call it regular people in a way. So um, I think there could just be a maturity. I think we need a maturity among the so-called left radical progressives or whatever. I mean, we, we need to have, um, I hope that they uh, get where they will talk to regular people instead of showing, you know, contempt or be dismissive towards, um, you know, the, the kinds of people they decide are entrenched enemies. I mean, the notion that uh, that's why I don't like a lot of the um, elements in what's called critical race theory, which I find kind of a bogus thing, but the notion that the country contains people who are, who are, uh, you know, congenitally and by some kind of physical phenomenon are, are always going to be uh, uh, enemies and racist and, and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, with an assumption like that, you're never going to have the kinds of coalitions and the kinds of movements that are actually going to be needed to to defeat fascist fascist tendencies. Yeah, there's that brings up some interesting points. Um, one is that like like it was in the 60s and the 70s, a lot of I, I see um, I interact a lot with young people being still working in a public library and having worked in colleges up until I retired from my last college and then got this other job. And I watched them, you know, I've been working since like, like mid eighties with young people when I was young and uh, just watching the, the political back, back and forth that young people have taken. And I would say at this point, young people are probably the most liberal as a general rule. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm meeting them in colleges, but I'm also meeting them just public school kids. But at the same time, like you say, I live in a very progressive, environment. I mean, I live in Vermont and Vermont's, Vermont's a very liberal bubble and so on. Um, but I do find, and speaking of just changes in the last 50 years, I do find certain levels of tolerance and acceptance on things like uh, the whole, you know, LBGTQ, et cetera, um, stuff has completely changed. Young people, most young people I know, whether they vote, whether they supported Trump or whether they support a Democrat or they don't do politics at all, most of them don't think twice about that. Uh, and like they hang with their friends if they're friends. And the same in terms of race, uh, people of different of different races and from different national origins and so on. And so I, I think that's one positive change. And I think the tolerance that people have for divergent views outside of the extremes on either side is, is pretty open. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest change. I used to teach a course on the 60s when I worked at U University of Vermont and kids would always ask me at the very, students would always ask me at the very end, so what's really changed? And this was back in the 90s. And so I say, well, in 1972, my hair was no longer than like, uh, I don't know, it was short. I mean, it barely went over the collar and stuff like that because my dad was a military man. I still lived in his house, so house rules. Um, but I said, and I couldn't get a job working as a cook at the pancake house. I said, now you walk into a grocery store and there's some kid got green hair, 
<laughs> got, tat, got tats and has earrings and everything. And nobody even thinks twice. They just say, hey, man, how's it going? And he checks out your, he or she checks out your groceries and you move on. So that I think has changed a lot. And people don't think twice in most parts of the country that I've lived in and so on about African-Americans driving buses, working construction, being doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Nor do they, they even think even less about women performing those same functions. And I always explain, I used to explain to my my daughter, especially like, you know, cause she'd, she'd be frustrated, she's 27 now about, she'd be frustrated about how, you know, how hard it was to be a woman. And I was like, yeah, I know it's harder to be a woman definitely than a man, but let me tell you how much harder it used to be. And she's like, well, what good does that do me? I said, well, I'm hoping, I'm trying to give you a little hope. That's all, you know, like I said, you never saw a woman bus driver. You never saw a woman pounding a hammer, swinging a hammer. You never saw a woman being a doctor even. So, so those are incremental changes that do make a difference. And so that's something to build on there. And I think that in terms of the uh, issues you raise about uh, critical race theory and it's that, that extreme aspect of it, it's um, anybody who knows, I mean, when I, was in the anti-war movement. I was also growing up on military bases. So I knew, and my father was a military man. So I knew that he was a decent human being and that a lot of people in the military were decent human beings. And so I had that fortunate that when I got out of, when I no longer had to live on military bases, when I turned 18 and left home, I was involved in the movement, but, and everybody was, oh, military, you know, it was, it wasn't spitting on the GIs like they used to say, but there was enough element in, in the anti-war movement that blamed the GIs as much as they blamed blamed the, uh, the generals and, and the people who sent them off to war. And so I don't know how much that still happens, but I still attribute a lot of that to their youth because I think most of those people who felt that way have changed their mind considerably once as they grew older. But that being the case, it's often the youth who are gonna be the ones pounding the pavement and going to making all the protests and and quote unquote, literally or figuratively manning, manning, womaning the barricades that, uh, so, so that's a, that just brings up more questions. Obviously that's what we're here is like to ask the questions and hopefully the answers, the questions will help us figure out some answers or ask the right people who help us figure them out. Mm -hmm. Ezra, well, what are you thinking? Well, I just wanted to clarify, um, the the article uh, Ron that was circulated, I, I saw I saw a lot of hope in a lot of hope in, in in the text, and was wondering really if you are not afraid at all of Trump and Trumpism. Is is that correct, or did I misread it? And do you do you think do you think really that the other forces on the other side are strong enough to really contend? Um, contend with Trumpism? I think right now we have the upper hand, the, the anti-Trump forces. And it's funny, that's a good question that you asked because over the years, people have always said, you know, my my radical and more radical friends have, have said, well, you know, are we gonna have a revolution? And all of you are old enough to remember like in 69, everybody thought the revolution was around the corner, uh, you know, because we had all that crazy stuff going on with, the state coming down on the Panthers and the anti-war movement and Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy being killed, all that kind of stuff. Um, and depending on the decade, I've, it seems like when I look back, it's like some some decades I've said, no, we're more likely to become fascists than move, 
move progressively forward. Right now, and since really since like about 2000, well, since Obama came in, even though Obama was a huge disappointment to me, but since Obama was elected the first time, especially the first time more than the second time, I think that we're at least evenly divided if we're going to put numbers. And I think we, I, I am hopeful that we can turn back that tide because I still think those numbers, the Trumpist numbers and, and the real rad, the, the hardcore ones, the ones that aren't sitting on the fence and that can't be convinced that, that, that they don't want to go backwards. They want to go forwards that, that John was talking about the, the, um, I, I think that, um, we, we still have an opportunity. We still have time. Even even in the face of, because uh, I think this is where I think that a lot of people certainly overseas are looking at, even in the face of the decision-making by the United States Supreme Court. Yes, because I think that, and once again, it depends. I really truly believe it depends on popular movements. Um, it, and this is the trick why I think it's so important to get popular get a lot of people out into the street to, to build a build a movement that addresses these issues um, that doesn't, and that like SDS incorporates different viewpoints, um, but definitely in my mind, because I consider the left being to be the more progressive side of human politics, um, to, that it has to, you know, it has to be a movement that supports the, you know, a humane existence for all, hum all of humanity. Uh, and I think most people that will appeal for us, appeal to, especially if it starts affecting them. Uh, the Supreme Court is a challenge, but I still think that even the Supreme Court is subject to uh, popular will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Supreme Court has been a force for uh, you know, reaction, actually, for quite some time. Yes, historically, I is, yeah, yeah. I think it is, uh, I mean, the composition makes it, makes a big difference and we have a very bad Supreme Court. But I'm concerned by the fact that so many millions in the country want better health care with a national health service, want housing, want better roads, want better education, better public education support. I mean, the public by, you know, maybe 60, 65 percent wants various things that are not being uh, granted by their supposed representatives. And if they aren't, then the imbalance in wealth and power is going to get worse. And who knows what's going to happen after that? But I, I'm not too, um, I'm not cheered up by what I'm seeing now. I'll say that. Yeah. I think part of it is there's a big, I don't, I think there, no matter how much people like to think that they don't need leaders and so on, I think there's a vacuum in the leadership place. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. and I also think when you combine that with the fact that, I mean, media has always, mainstream media since I've been alive and especially since I started reading the newspapers in the late 60s has always been on the side of the establishment. However, the it was a much broader viewpoint. I mean, the Washington Post was not the Manchester Union, was not the San Diego Tribune and so on. And now I think it's mostly due to the fact that most media is owned by just a few conglomerates and mm -hmm. I don't care what I don't care what Bezos says. The Washington Post has become more reactionary since be, more pro wealth mm -hmm. inequality and all that stuff since he bought the paper. And 
you know, he might not be editorializing, but whoever's doing the hiring is certain hiring people that are going to spout what he believes and so on. And so I think that's part of the issue because, I mean, you can think like, I cannot conceive of a Pentagon Papers happening today. Mm. I can't I can't conceive of the New York Times or the Washington Post or even a Watergate challenging the, the administration, no matter who's in power at this, you know, at this level. And then you have the I mean, the right wing challenge, ultra right media challenges it. But for most people in the country, thank God, at this point, Fox News has become pretty much of a joke. It has its hardcore 30 percent. But. Even I mean, on papers, no, but the but, no, that's probably not going to happen again, uh, because we see what happened to Julian Assange. Right. But yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, right. yeah. But uh, there is a consortium of, uh, of of investigative reporters, including many of the of the of the our best newspapers that has been doing some very good investigation. Uh, you know, and, and they collaborate. I mean, you know, the, the Guardian in uh, in in the United Kingdom, um, El País here in Spain, um, and of course, you know, the, the New York Times, and uh, you know, you know, I, I I wouldn't I, I wouldn't give up on uh, on professional journalism. Oh, I won't. I mean, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what about you guys? At, what you do with Counterpunch? I mean, that's you guys are pretty. We pressure and, you know, we have a, a fairly decent readership and so on. Um, it's, it's, it's challenging, I think, for us in, in terms of when, and when I have my conversations, when I used to have conversations with Alexander Coburn and then with what I have with Jeffrey and Joshua, in that the media is, you know, the, the technology has changed it all so much that, yeah. you know, you do get feedback better than you used to, like, you know, I mean, even the New York Times now has a pretty decent instant comments page, you know, like when you and most of their articles, they allow commenting on and so on. Uh, but if you read those comments pages, the Times isn't as bad as other ones, but it's like some people, it seems like all they do is sit on there and type type comments to newspapers. I, I think there's hope, I but I still wonder how, how far that can go when you, um, when the rain, the, the economics of it is all tied up in people yeah. who are profiting greatly from the current situation. Ron, you uh, made a comment that you were quite disappointed in uh, Obama. You want to expound on that a little bit? Well, yes. Um, I was living down in Asheville, North Carolina at the time. And uh, I love Asheville. It's kind of like Savannah it has a similar history in terms of the, be, being a resort town for wealthy Southerners. And also it was one of the few towns in North Carolina that did not discriminate against Jews prior to like the 70s. Uh, so it was a big, there, it has a quite a bit large Jewish uh, presence even in its history and even currently and so on, which was unusual for the South, especially up until recent times outside of certain cities, Savannah being another one. Um, but what I remember getting on, I rode the public transit and I was going to work. And the day after Obama got elected, the, um, the neighborhood I lived in was a working class neighborhood. So it was pretty racially mixed and stuff. But there was one place that was um, housing projects, all section eight housing that was predominantly, well, it was all poor people, obviously, poor, working poor. And it was about 50% 50, 50 white, about 40% African-American and about 10% uh, Latino. And there was this young African-American man who got on and sat at the front of the bus and every time somebody got on the bus, he goes, we got a black president. 
we got a black president. And most people were like, yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome and stuff, you know, and those who didn't like it just glared at him and went to the back of the bus. And so it, it represents a certain kind of hope, you know, and I think of people um, all across former SDSers and so on who are very hopeful and so on. And then by the time 2012 came around, the words were still coming, but the compromise had, in my opinion, had become surrender to the basis elements of the far right in Congress. And that, that was frustrating to me because I kind of believe that he did have the will to pass some decent kind of legislation. And sure, things, are, things got better and we had to undo the Bush years. But if you look at it, we were still totally engaged in um, Afghanistan and pretty, pretty greatly engaged in Iraq still, um, by the time the second the, his reelection came around, and at the time I was pretty involved in the anti-war movement, so that to me was really frustrating because I saw the com I saw Obama manipulate or the Democrats manipulating the anti-war movement into voting for Obama when in reality it didn't end the war; it just kept it going on a different level, and we didn't we moved forward in terms of some racial equity. And in terms of some economic stuff, we undid some of the worst things that the Bush um, administration did. But we, it could have been, I just think it could have been a lot more, um, we could have been a lot more aggressive and, and done a lot more and possibly made it so that the Trump, that Trump would have never even been an issue uh, in the 2016 election. I mean, because there would have been enough gains that the Democrats um, could have pointed to and people I mean, Hillary won by three million votes, but she lost the election. And I think that and if you look at all the electoral demographics, post-electoral analysis and stuff, it kind of seems like some of the places where she lost the election, where the Democrats lost the election, were places where Obama had won previously, um, just because he, his words were right. And, and at the same time, he brought out voters who might not have voted, you know, and I think primarily among that were um, voters who uh, he represented something, well, the fact that he was African, uh, African-American made a big difference, uh, but also the fact that he had, like Bill Clinton, had come from relatively humble beginnings made, made a difference. And I think that spoke to people, uh, but a lot of those people I think stayed home in 2020 and that's kind of what, or 2016, and that's kind of what affected things as well. I'll just say this about the Vietnam War and the movements of the 60s and the 70s. I was in the Navy at the time, but my perception is this, that it was the draftees being shot and killed in your living room that was the big galvanizer of opposition. And when Nixon ended the draft, it took that away. Yeah. Now you've got this volunteer military, and so what if we send them to war? They're on no skin off my teeth. Mm -hmm. Easy to do. Yeah. Uh, Marcy, would, Marcy had your hand up. What's up? Yes. I wanted to ask, uh, Ron, you seem to have left out the role of money, big money, in our political life. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it obviously does what it, it plays a larger role than probably pretty anything else. I've kind of mentioned in that article about that the election in, um, Virginia wasn't the end of democracy, neither was 2020, neither was 2016. 
And I said that, you know, and that it's not just the GOP that is trying to end democracy. I see what the Democrats have consistently done to the left side of their party as that's big money. I mean, George McGovern onward, you know, and uh, even even Teddy Kennedy, who was big money himself, he got pushed out um, in 1980. And he probably was the last true liberal to ever run um, ever run for the president, you know, until Bernie came up and so on. And he got pushed out because he wanted socialized medicine. He, I mean, he got pushed out for a number of reasons. And then we got Ronald Reagan and we know how all that, and what Ronald Reagan, what he, the, what he brought in was the beginning of the privatization of the world. Uh, and so I, I think big money plays a huge part. And I think big money played a huge part in sidelining the Bernie Sanders campaign in the last two um, elections. And in the last election, it was, it, was, it was very obvious. And in the previous one, it was the manipulation happened at a, at a, at a more at a, at a local level, like out west when they manipulated those, uh, the caucuses and so on. Uh, but still, I think if that we, and it, as anybody probably here knows, and hopefully I, I, I'm guessing agrees, Citizen United was probably the thing that took it from drive into hyperdrive. Mm. And, you know, and in, in, until corporations are no longer people, I, I think that's the, the bit, one of the biggest battles when it comes to the, to the electoral route. It's important to build a grassroots movement and not to build a, camp, a political campaign because a political campaign automatically limits, it, it makes the target of that, camp, of that movement to, to elect a person. And I think that if you, if, if, you have a, if you build a grassroots movement that is left and is very popular, then you'll get politicians wanting to join your movement as opposed to the opposite. Now that's how it seems to me happened with the Vietnam War was the anti the Vietnam and the civil rights movement. It got so big and so popular um, among the American mindset, even those who weren't going to protest and among the American media, whether it was portrayed correctly or not, that people, I mean, me watching protests on TV when I was in middle in junior high made me want to be against the war. That plus the fact my dad was going to Vietnam. But um, and that happened across the board with a lot of friends of mine, even though we were in like military communities and so on. So I really believe that if you and then the politicians started flocking to it. I mean, George McGovern mounted a pretty healthy campaign. Um, it forced what he happened got to, clobbered. He got, he got clobbered. Cl yeah, but he got clobbered not just because he was anti-war. He got clobbered because he was he was going against Richard Nixon and the bulk of the Democratic Party, the bulk of the Democratic leadership. They reformed the party after 68 because of uh, Humphrey and LBJ and so on. And then they basically withdrew their support. They fed the newspapers these, the stuff about Eagleton, which probably nowadays wouldn't happen because mental health is not an issue like it was back then. It wasn't a scourge and so on. Uh, and sure, he might have got clobbered anyhow, but I don't think he would have got clobbered as badly as he did if he did not have the Democratic leadership, Democratic Party leadership against him. And, and they were against him. They did not like George McGovern. They didn't like his supporters. Remember, I mean, they were as they were, you know, and then it was against a machine that of Richard Nixon uh, and a Republican Party that had the support of the right wing of the Democratic Party, for sure. I mean, you know. Well, as Jeff is pointing out in his book, 
big money, the big money is against democracy. You might say that, you know, to put it in a nutshell, the big money establishment that's making money off people, they're against any extensions of, uh, of yes. democracy and they, they have their mouthpieces. You know, one of the greatest, um, the first um, scholar of and politician of against fascism was the Bulgarian communist Georgi Dimitrov. You could read his writings about fascism. He analyzed it. Yes. And the main thing they show you is that you know fascism is the it, the basis of fascism is the military accumulation of capital. I mean, as money making gets militarized, there's a drive then for wars and for sending the big big money into things that are offshoots of wars. And I think that's the big danger we face now in our politics and our economy. George Allen, you had something. Uh, I keep thinking that uh, as somebody who's been pretty actively engaged all my life in uh, participating and trying to organize opposition to what most of us would call evil in one form or another, uh, that ultimately uh, good triumphs when it does triumph, not because of brilliant organizing or brilliant scholarship or even great lawyering or uh, great leadership, but because uh, a lot of this crummy shit has within it the seeds of its own destruction. Uh, and uh, so. Think about George Kennan's long telegram, uh, where basically he said, there isn't anything we can do about Stalin uh, other than encircle and wait, and wait maybe generations. Well, he was right. Uh, it worked. Uh, we encircled and we waited, and it did collapse. Uh, <laughs> I was looking at a couple of numbers. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was able to get two people on her select committee, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Thirteen House Republicans voted for the infrastructure bill. Uh, the congressman from where I grew up, Omaha, is a very interesting guy. Don Bacon, retired Air Force General, moderate Republican. He voted for the infrastructure bill. Uh, okay, so that group has grown from two to 13 in the space of, oh, what, I, I don't know, a few weeks, a couple of months. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at the fracture lines within the Trumpist movement, and then also to recognize that because of how badly gerrymandered this country is in the US Senate and House districts also, uh, the far right has enor is enormously leveraged uh, so that something like 35 or 38 percent of the U.S. population elects a majority in the U.S. Senate uh, or elects the Republicans. Uh, but there are some trend lines there that are, you know, the counter argument is people have been breaking down the Virginia numbers and saying, hey, we're not losing the small towns and the rural areas by 70-30. We're losing them now by 90-10. Uh, that's disturbing. Uh, but I, I do think that uh, one has to take a broader view. Uh, somebody mentioned we hadn't talked about money. We also haven't talked about uh, the 
enormously disruptive effect of social media and of Facebook in particular uh, on how all of these dynamics work. Uh, and that's a major, major change. Uh, I just remembered Bernard Balin and uh, I think it was History 160, History of the American Revolution, talking about the times being out of joint and that that was a lot of the reason it succeeded. Uh, and, and, but I do think that ultimately uh, circumstances do produce uh, most of the time leaders. Uh, I keep thinking about Stacey Abrams and how brilliantly she put together what actually got Biden elected and how fortunate we were that in retrospect, he did not select her as his vice presidential candidate because of how critical she was in winning Georgia yeah. and in creating mechanisms. Of, you know, Jamie Harrison came close in uh, South Carolina. Uh, so uh, it, it seems to me uh, the Trumpite thing is going to disintegrate. It's going to disintegrate because it won't work. Uh, and ultimately, a lot of the bad things disintegrated. Okay. I, I would like to say about George, what you just said. I I, I hope you're right. And, and and also, it's kind of like um, I don't. I, I'm anti-capitalist to the core, but at the same time, I'm also a realist to know that capitalism isn't going anywhere. So what I what I what I in in today right now in the in the present, what I oppose. And I acknowledge capitalism is is revolutionary in in its solutions and its inventions and so on. I mean, Karl Marx said that long back in the Communist Manifesto and so on. But but what what I to me the solution the, the the issue would be just like what it said on the back of AOC's dress: let them be capitalism, but tax them so that at the same rate that the rest of us are taxed so that that wealth can be spread around a little bit you know i mean that's one thing bill clinton did he redistributed the wealth a little bit back into the working class after it had been been moving upward throughout the carter especially the reagan years and so on so i mean i think that's a modest thing that i think you can get most people if you if if if, if we can figure out how to phrase yeah. the question we we can get most people to agree on that and make it because there is a truth to that adage that some somebody said some american the thing with americans is they all believe that they're going to be a millionaire someday even though you're a lot closer to sleeping on the street than you ever will be to be to be in a billionaire especially that was writer ron jacobs writer for Counterpunch and also the author of Daydream Sunset, the 60s counterculture in the 70s. And that's going to be it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.